Father, we agree with those prayers and do desire that you be glorified in sickness and also in health, that we may glorify your name in all things. We praise you that you're worthy. We praise you today, especially that you remind us, even though, as Connie prayed, we should be reminded every day that you have raised from the dead, since that's key to living in you, is the fact that you are alive, you are indwelling us, and you give us resurrection power. So we praise you for that today, especially, and do desire to remember it and to glorify you in it. So as we look at your word and we're looking at this concept of living in you and the principles involved that we may have our minds fixed on what you have said, what you have revealed, and that we may, in fact, experience the reality of what you have put in your word. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been stressing as we've been getting into the book of Romans, chapter 6 particularly, don't stress, (laughs) chill out, (laughs) maybe emphasizing is the better word, (laughs) emphasizing that Paul stresses throughout this the, uh, the reality of truth. In fact, he's going to begin chapter 7 with that same word that we looked at at the beginning of chapter 6. Do you not know? It's the identical same word. So the major emphasis in terms of living the Christian life is living it based on what God has revealed and what we know. Now, Satan is very subtle in that he twists everything around. And one thing that he twists in this area is the concept of experiencing the Christian life. The Bible does not deny or does not teach an experience, but we turn it around. And church tends to seek experiences, whether they be emotional or mystical or in some way generated by the flesh. But in reality, what God wants is to have our thinking correct and rightly centered on what he has revealed, and then we have the experience. So right thinking, right doctrine, right teaching comes before proper and biblical experience. So to experience the Christian life, it has to be based on truth and what God has revealed, and that's what we have in Romans 6 and 7, and in actually 8 as well. So we're going to look at first six verses, and I'm going to try to get to verse 6. We won't get everything done in verse 6, but hopefully we'll get at least that far, because it all kind of hangs together. So the Romans had similar experiences to us, and we desire to be biblical, and Paul is writing... God's revelation to them, and since humanity is not much different over the ages in terms of our nature, these things apply to us as well. Now, we have already seen, developed through some of these early passages, several images that Paul uses in order to convey spiritual, unseen truth. So he's kind of bringing them to our consciousness by using all of these images. We saw in 12 to 13, sin reigning, or the alternative, 
grace reigning. In fact, even in chapter 5, we have this image of a king reigning. The word that is used there is that that a king does. He reigns over a territory or a country or a a landmass. And also those that are subject to that king, believers. So we've seen that image. The emphasis of those is our service in that administration, you might say. In that realm, we are servants of the king. Closely related is a master-slave relationship. We're introduced to that in chapter 6, 14 through 22, where Paul uses the word doulas, the noun form, duleo, the verb form. What was it? Seven total times, the noun and the verb. So we have the image of a master-slave relationship, the emphasis there is obedience. That's the primary task of a slave. And now he's going to use a different imagery beginning in uh, verse 1, chapter 7, a husband-wife imagery. And it is imagery. He's not teaching the doctrine of marriage here, even though this passage sometimes is used in that way and even sometimes abused in that way. But he's using it as an illustration or an image in order to convey a spiritual truth. We'll look at that more closely in a moment. And the emphasis here is fruitfulness. And that's kind of how the passage moves in verses 4 through through 6. So service, obedience, and fruit are the main principles that are emphasized using three different images. So... We've completed looking at justification. We're in the heart of the major doctrine of sanctification, 6 through 8. Chapter 6 emphasizes the principles that are needed, the things that we need to know, the doctrine, you might say. Not that he stops in chapter 6. In fact, we're going to look at a principle at the beginning of chapter 7, but it's somewhat transitional to the problems that we have what we can encounter when we try to live the Christian life. And the first one is a problem with with the law. And again, Satan twists that relationship. Are we to be obedient? Yes. But there's a way of attempting obedience based on the law that is a distortion of what God desires. We call that legalism. So the problems, not only legalism, but there's another one that he deals with as well. The solution and the answer is in chapter 8, we live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And chapter 7 will be the contrast to that. So we're starting with chapter 7. So 6, the principles, 7, the problems. And the first major idea, verse 1 through 14, the law cannot sanctify. So we're going to talk some more about the law. We've already seen a lot about it, so I'll remind you about some of it, and I think we can get through these verses, six of them, because we've already covered a lot of these concepts relating to the law, so I'll mainly remind you of them. The first six verses, the main thing there is release from the law. We're under grace, not under law. So he's going to emphasize that aspect, the release from the law. And the first three verses is an illustration He's going to use marriage as an illustration. He's not teaching the doctrine of marriage. In fact, there's a little 
ambiguity in there, you might say, or even a little mixing, you might say, of the correspondence. So you don't want to take it too far. Look for the main point that he's trying to make here, and then you're on right track. In fact, that's true. I'll talk a little bit about hermeneutics, but in hermeneutics or principles for interpreting anything, biblical hermeneutics, principles for interpreting scripture, a principle, when you encounter an illustration, you don't make it walk on all fours. You look for the main point of that illustration. There might be secondary points, but don't try to make every little detail fit. And Paul is using an illustration. We do the same thing. I mean, all analogies, all illustrations break down if you try to force them to walk on all fours. So he's going to give us an illustration of marriage. And he begins in verse 1, or do you not know? Same word that we saw, what is it, verse 3, chapter 6. And the assumption here, he's kind of from the negative, just trying to bring to a remembrance, you might even say. A reminder, you should know this, but he frames it, do you not know it? In the negative, mainly to bring it to their thinking. And he also says, brethren... So he's kind of softening it, you might say, and kind of giving the relational aspect here. He's said some difficult things, and now he's just trying to embrace the audience, refers to them as brethren. So he's speaking to believers, speaking to believers here. The whole book is written to believers. In fact, the whole Bible, there are very few books of the Bible that are directed to an unbeliever. They're all particularly the book of Romans, we've been stressing that. In fact, we've been saying he deals with doctrines relating to unbelievers, but it's not evangelistic. The doctrines relating to the unbelievers are for believers to be better equipped to be able to share the gospel with unbelievers. So this is emphasized in verse 1. For I am speaking to those who know law. Do you notice one thing that I didn't highlight there the article and Maddie can tell you why I didn't put it there because she's got the New Testament Greek memorized right now. <laughs> not in the Greek huh? yep there she goes see I told you she would know I'm speaking to those who know law and we have a little bit of a hint also from the New American Standard what does the New American Standard do doesn't capitalize it doesn't capitalize it so I think here he is speaking in a more general sense and he's thinking more in terms of common understanding. We're in the middle of an illustration here. So when we speak of law, he's not specifically at this point, in verse 1 at least, he's not talking about the Mosaic law. Now I think he moves and does talk about the Mosaic law and even maybe the second usage might began a transition there, okay? And I think New American Standard correctly doesn't uh, give you the capitalizations, Mary Lee. I'm just thinking that the, the Romans were very, quote, moral. I mean, you know, the home and right. relation, the husband-wife relationship was very important in Roman culture. It was declining, it but, was, but the, yes. I mean, like here, you right. know. Right, Exactly. Yeah. We live in a, uh, where all of our morals are 
identified yes. rapidly, but right. there still is that standard of, well, this is what the law is. This and I and I agree with you, in that Roman culture, the first thing that may have come to mind as you raise an issue of legality is Roman civil law. Right. Okay? So, I, I take it that maybe, probably, in verse 1, I think it changes, and remember, context is everything, and sometimes even within the same context, you have clues that maybe he might use the same word in a different way. And I think that's the case in uh, verse 2. But let me just remind you, we looked at this concept because it's so important in Romans. Law, the word namas, and it's used here. And by the way, in this passage, it's used eight times namas is. And I think in chapter 7, it's used like 23 times. So let's be reminded because we're going to talk about the law, not only today, but the next next week, and then when we get back from Israel. So, namas, you're familiar with it. Remember, I, I, I kind of emphasized that in Romans, Paul uses the word in a variety of ways. Sometimes, like in 321, he specifically seems to be referring to the Pentateuch, because he says the law and the prophets. In other words, the first five books and the rest of the Bible. That's a phrase that Jesus used and some of the others as well. And Paul, when he says the law and the prophets, the word law specifically refers to the first five books. Sometimes he's referring to the Mosaic Covenant in probably chapter 2. We won't look these up, but uh, verse 20, verse 23, those are passages that he's probably referring to the covenant and perhaps even in this chapter 7 passage. I'll mention that when we get to it. Sometimes he's referring to the Old Testament in, in general. And remember, I based that when we were in chapter 3, 19 through 21. He has just quoted mainly out of the Psalms. And then he says, referring to what he quoted, refers to it as the law. So he's not just talking about the first five books in the preceding context. He seems to be including the whole Old Testament. Remember that? And sometimes he refers specifically to the Ten Commandments. We're going to see that in verse 7 when he refers to coveting. And he says this is what the law says concerning specifics, Ten Commandments and others as well, 7 through 9. And sometimes he refers to this time frame or this dispensation that we call a time frame or an economy or an era of law from Moses to the church age. And we see that in 14 through 15. Remember, I stressed that aspect. And possibly, and I'm inclined, in verse 1 of chapter 7, he's referring to civil law. Civil law. These are all in Romans. So Paul uses it in different ways in even the same book. And uh, just to complete our little thing here, he also refers to a moral, kind of a universal law that is built into all mankind, and he talks about a law that exists inside the Gentiles. It's not the Mosaic law. They were, in some cases, unfamiliar with the Mosaic law, unless they were proselytes or were familiar with Jewish people. So he's talking in 2.14 about this universal law that God has put within all humanity, this moral law. 
And then we saw at the end of chapter 3 a principle. And in some translations, it doesn't translate namas as law. It translates it as a principle. So 3, 27 through 28. Just a quick review of the many ways that it can be used elsewhere, outside of Romans, but even within the book of Romans, the word is used in different senses. So when you study a word, you need to study carefully the context to understand the meaning. So in verse 1 of chapter 7, he's probably speaking in terms of civil law in a broad sense maybe, or maybe even more specifically as Roman law, or maybe just law in general as it regulates a society, civil law. Does that make sense? You see that? So I'm speaking to those who know law that the law, you may be transitioning because the article is there in the Greek text in this verse, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now, I think he's speaking in this general sense. In other words, once you die, you don't have to obey the civil authorities anymore. It says no loitering, but there you are. That's right. You're loitering on the street, laying on the sidewalk. Okay, so law of jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Once we're out of these bodies, nothing regulates us except God himself. So no civil law has impact on us. That's kind of a given. That's kind of a self-evident truth. So he's speaking... Those of you that are familiar with law, civil law, you know that once you die, you don't have to pay your taxes anymore. Even moral law. As soon as you're dead, you, you know, you have to get up and go to work. Well, so as long as the, the jurisdiction ends at death, this is the point, the point of the passage. All right. Now he's going to give us an illustration. And before he does, we need to keep kind of hermeneutics in mind. And the first thing is you always look for a purpose for a passage. Why does Paul talk about marriage here? He's been talking about sanctification throughout. He's been talking about being dead to sin and alive to God. He's been talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's been talking about these spiritual issues. And now he kind of, out of nowhere, you might think, unless you look at the purpose here, now he talks about marriage. What's the purpose of the passage? It's not on marriage. It's not on marriage. So, don't draw conclusions from this passage concerning marriage, as some do. Some people use this passage to teach the idea that all divorce is wrong. In other words, you there's no grounds for divorce except death. He's not teaching on marriage. So, that's a wrong conclusion. It's not wrong to remarry. And that's a position that a lot of people take. This passage says you can't marry, remarry until the, the other spouse dies. Well, that's contradicted by other passages. So you need to use Genesis 1 and 2. You need to use Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, 1 Corinthians 7 to deal with this area of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Not Romans 7. You interpret Romans 7 in light of passages that deal with marriage, not the other way around. Not Romans 7 interpreting the other passages. Basic hermeneutical principle, okay? 
So marriage here is just an illustration, and he wants us to draw a particular idea from this illustration. Got it? Okay. So verse 2, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. Now, New American Standard doesn't capitalize it. But I think he may be transitioning because of the description that he's using here. He may be specifically speaking about the marriage law of the Mosaic law. In other words, the Mosaic law has very clear stipulations concerning marriage. It it could, yeah, it could include that as well. But I think he's transitioning here because we're going to see that it's going to change as well. And by the way, there's no article there as well. All of the others have the article. So uh, the married woman, now it follows from what he said before in verse 1. Now the illustration, that is the specific illustration for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. And by the way, Roman law was far more flexible in terms of divorce, whereas the Mosaic law was not as flexible. So she's bound by law to her husband while he is living, in general. And again, you go to the Old Testament for any possible uh, exceptions. But if her husband dies, here's part of the illustration, she's bound to her husband as long as he's alive. If he dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. She's alive. The husband's dying. (laughs) Yeah, the husband. Okay, but she is released from the law concerning the husband because he died. So the contract. The contract, good way of putting it. Contract comes to an end. So then... If while her husband is living, so he's going to just kind of expand the illustration here, she is joined to another man. Now, if this is this happens as a possibility, it's a third class condition, by the way, so it's not assumed to be true, she shall be called an adulteress. In other words, she's in violation of the law. But if her husband dies, she is free. From the law, reiterating what he said in verse 2. Paul said in verse 2. So that she is not an adulteress, if her husband dies, though she is joined to another. She can remarry now. She's free to remarry. So that's the illustration. Now, beginning in verse 4, he's going to draw the principle that he's illustrating from the illustration. So he's not talking about the doctrine of marriage, he's using marriage as a illustration, an image, you might even say, but more specifically, an illustration. So now we move from the uh, illustration to the application of the illustration. That's verses 4 through 6. David. Uh, you think that what he's talking about to those who know the law and, and following it up with this verse, he's... he's reflecting on the culture of the Roman culture at the time so that people would understand the context of what he's saying yeah. uh, about marriage and this is this is the this is the this is what they understood. This is the general principle even in Roman law and more specifically uh, so it's what he's more framing it about it, it's tighter until death. He's reflecting on the culture of the times mm-hmm. rather than drawing a, a rule of law himself from it. 
Yeah, he's using that as an illustration. Mary Lee? I'm just going to say, even in cultures that may um, commit divorce, it still is not, I, I, I'm thinking through from what I know of anthropology and all the rest, it's not cool when someone is married to one to be joined to another two. So that gets, Polygamy, yeah. yeah. Unless it's a culture of polygamy, which is different, but uh, nonetheless, if it's not a culture of polygamy where mm-hmm. that's an accepted practice, you don't have a husband that's married to this woman and also to this one and this one, or a wife that's married to several husbands, you generally don't, and even our culture doesn't really accept it. Generally. Right. right. Okay. Now, if they're not married, divorced, then it's, there's no problem. Right. right? Yeah. So, he's not going into all the details of when you can remarry or when you can divorce. He's not going there. He's, he's drawing a principle out of what he has stated in verses 1 through 3, or specifically 2 through 3. So in verse 4, he's going to begin to apply. So, we saw that the purpose of this whole passage, 1 through 3, is not on marriage it's marriage as an illustration, but there's a, another, a second hermeneutical principle, context of the passage. Context is everything. What is the context? It's in the context of sanctification. So don't focus on the issue of marriage when you come to this passage. Figure out what he's trying to illustrate in relationship to sanctification. So he's going to give us another principle in this passage. So, a good quote that I was reminded of, S. Lewis Johnson says, Romans is Paul's masterpiece of salvation. And I think he's using salvation in this broadest sense. So, salvation, specifically from the penalty of sin, that's chapter 3, 21 through 5, 11. Remember I said 5, 12 begins a transition to sanctification. Sanctification from the power of sin. Now he divides it up there. Chapter 5, 12 through 8, 17. That's the section we are in. That's the context. Paul describes it as sanctification. But remember we said salvation is used in this sanctifying sense in, some, in many passages. And then Johnson thirdly says, and salvation from the presence of sin. What's the word that Paul uses? Glorification. And that's chapter 8, 18 through 39. So we're in the middle here. We're in the sanctification portion. So this illustration has to somehow relate. It's not out of context. It's within a context. And the context is sanctification. Therefore, so verse 4, Therefore, my brethren... And notice, my brethren, it gets even more personal, reiterating what he said in verse 1, second time he uses brethren. And in this case, I think he, remember, there were a two-part audience in the church at Rome. It was predominantly Gentile. It's at the heart of the Roman Empire. So mainly Gentile believers were members of the church at Rome. There was a significant contingent of Jewish believers as well. So when he says, my brethren, I think he is expanding and including Jew and Gentile. And that's why he says, those of you that are familiar with law, 
He's not excluding the Gentiles because the Gentiles were familiar with civil law as well. But he's also going to be more specific and notice you also were made to die to what? The law with the article, New American Standard capitalizes it because now what is he talking about? He's not talking about law in general. He used that as an illustration. Law in general as an illustration, but now in his application, you also were made to die to the law, probably the Mosaic law in verse 4 at least, and possibly even in verse 2 he may be transitioning to that. So you are made to die to law. This is the principle. This is the main point that he's trying to make. Just as a wife is free when her husband dies, so also when there's a death, there's also freedom. You see the point he's making? Mary Lee. I would say that you, you would have him making that point because there was always Judaizers in the congregation who said, oh, but you have to obey this in order to be that. Yes. And so he's simply reiterating to them too mm-hmm. that there was a law they also died to. Right. And that's what I see because you always had the threat of people wanting to impose the Jewish, the weight of the Jewish law on new believers who came in with all their... Yeah, that's part of what he's going to develop further as we get into verses 7 and on. He is just, at this point, introducing that to begin that process that you're describing, to deal with Judaism and Judaizers and legalism. Okay, so when you were uh, giving a law, the second one used to read law. Yes, yeah. I described it as covenant because it is a covenant as well that embodies the stipulations of the covenant, and that's the law. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you also were made to die to the law. So we died. See, it's a little bit inconsistent. The wife died. We're the wife. The wife lives. Yeah. In Paul's illustration, and the husband died. Right. But now we die. And that's the point. When there's a death, there's a break in the covenant. And in this case, we die. That's chapter 6. When Christ died on the cross, chapter 6 says we were united and joined, or he uses the word baptized, into his death. Then he goes on burial and resurrection. So the believer experienced a real death. Spiritual, invisible, you can't feel it, you can't sense it, but Paul says it's real. A real union with the death of Christ. So you are also made to die to the law now through the body of Christ. And why does he say the body of Christ? It's to remind us of that body that hung on a cross. And that's the point of chapter 6, beginning verse 3. You see that, Maddie? Um, I do, but I have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, no, go ahead. Um, so I understand um, also that um, Paul will make it further on that he talks about if someone made a will or a law or an agreement, that's only cut without the death of state or right? Hebrews. And Christ died, like he's the giver of the covenant, he died, 
Um, and so that brings that covenant to an end. So is that also another thing? That yes, I think he's, yeah, I think he, and he's implying it here as well. But keep in mind, the believer died with Christ. Yeah. He's already developed that. He's not making it explicit here, but he's already yeah, emphasized it in chapter 6. So I think Paul's saying that when he says, my brethren, like you say, he's yes. talking specifically to believers. believers. Yep, yeah, really? So we died, we died. We died. In our relationship to the old law. Yes. It's now a new era or dispensation. But there's we are we are preachers. He also says later that yes. we are not we are not what we were. That's right. He's going to get to that. So it's not a new and improved. No. It's a brand new. No, it's a guess. Yep. Brand and new. That, and that covenant, that the covenant, yeah, no longer stands. It's not binding anyone. Right. Exactly. Very good. That's his point. Okay? Now, there's a lot of parallels and some reminders as well. In chapter 6, before we were believers, he's stressing our condition before we were alive to sin, before we were believers. We were slaves of sin, verse 17 through 20. We were free from righteousness. We just saw that recently in verse 20. And then in the... Condition after salvation, dead to sin, chapter 6, verse 2. Freed from sin, 6, verse 19. Slaves to God, 19 through 21. He's going to review some of these things. Then in chapter 7, he's saying now a new twist to it. Not only are we dead to sin, that's the emphasis chapter 6, but in verse 4, we're dead to law. We died to the law, and now we're dead to it. So we've already seen a lot on on the law in Romans. Book of Romans on law, we've encountered it in several places already. A major emphasis is that no one is justified by the law, specifically chapter 3, verse 20, 27 through 28. Secondly, you do not receive any righteousness. In fact, our righteousness is as filthy rags, no righteousness through obedience to the law. It's not the purpose, that's not the design of the law. That's emphasized in chapter 4, 13 through 16, dealing with Abraham. Abraham's before the law is the whole point. And he's justified, justified by faith, apart from law. Thirdly, law in chapter 4, verse 15, brings wrath. Puts us in a position of wrath because we are violators of it. In chapter 5, verse 20, sin increased when law came in. In other words, our awareness of sin is intensified and aggravated such that you say, I can't do that, now I want to do it. He's going to emphasize that in chapter 7 as well. But in 5.20, sin increased. And now in 4, 7.4, we died to it. Slightly new concept. So we have all that background already. And... Middle of verse 4, so that you might be joined to another. Just as the wife is free to remarry when the husband died, so also the analogy or the, I shouldn't say analogy, the illustration, more accurate, a death took place, now we're free to remarry. 
so that you might be joined to another. And in fact, this joining to another is a reality. Not only are we baptized into Christ, not only are we united into Christ, not only are we, in fact, identified with Christ once we have trusted in him, but in fact, we are married to Christ. This is part of the analogy that he's drawing here, or the imagery. And we have a real husband that is deeper than any earthly husband and if you look at it in a broader sense, during the church age, somebody look up 2 Corinthians eleven two. During the church age, we are somewhat in using the Jewish marriage pattern, you might say. There was a betrothal. You got it? Somebody else look, well, we won't look up Revelation 19, but 2 Corinthians eleven two. read that one. Betrothal. For I feel and divine to hold you truth, and I the truth do. Okay. A betrothal to Jesus Christ. Paul says, I betrothed you. I led you into that relationship. I led you to Christ. You are betrothed. You're married. This was the situation from a Jewish context of Mary and Joseph. They were betrothed. And there was about a period of time, about a year, where they were legally bound, covenant enforced, but they did not consummate the marriage for about a year. It was a period of preparation for both, for the husband to prepare a home to be able to support a wife, the wife to prepare to learn skills to be able to be an effective wife. And the two were legally married. So to break that, this is why Joseph is in a difficult situation. He's got a a wife that he's married to, and it's not he because of him, but she's pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. Without any experience of a virgin birth, the only conclusion is she's been unfaithful. So he has to have revelation to clarify the reality of the situation. Especially since she's been gone for so long. He didn't know what went on over there. Exactly. Carrying this analogy of a husband-wife relationship, the rapture you could view as the husband or the groom coming for the bride. And this was in a traditional Jewish wedding. There was this procession, you might say, where the husband came to get the bride. That's the context of Matthew chapter 25, the ten virgins. The virgins are prepared, or five are prepared and five are unprepared. And the illustration doesn't deal so much with the church. It's dealing, I think, with those attendants to the marriage. Revelation 19, we won't look that one up, but it speaks of a marriage supper. That was also part of a Jewish ceremony. Marriage supper, and then a great celebration, festive time, lots of alcohol, (laughs) lots of rejoicing, and hopefully no drunkenness, but celebration. And then what happens after the celebration? Consummation and... The lifelong commitment in a marriage relationship, I think the imagery of the millennium is the marriage bliss and the life of commitment together. And all of this is with Jesus Christ, those that are believers. We are right now betrothed to him. We are preparing to spend a millennium in close intimacy with him. 
We await a day when he comes for us. We await the rapture, where now we will be with him in a very experiential sense. And we will have a celebration, this is described in Revelation 19, after the rapture. It's not clear when, maybe in heaven during the great tribulation when things on earth are transpiring, and then the millennium we will be part of not only the kingdom, but we will also be part of the household of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful imagery. Joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. He's reminding us of chapter 6 again. If we died with him, we were also baptized into his burial, baptized into his resurrection. And that's what we celebrate today. To him who was raised from the dead. So here's your Easter message from this class. And there's a purpose for it in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now he's changing the imagery a little bit, but it's still related to marriage in that we do bear fruit. So he might be extending it or he may be uh, transitioning to another image here in order that we might bear fruit for God. So we can, we have this joining to a new husband that should bear fruit. Now, Today we don't have time to develop that idea, and I'd like to come back to this, but I also want to get to verse 6. So sanctification, we look at it broadly in order to see what he's talking about in this context. I think we are set apart in God's plan in eternity past. One of the verses in the book of Romans, but more specifically Ephesians 1.3, speaks of... Ephesians passage, election, the doctrine of election. I don't want to get sidetracked by that, but I think God has a plan that included us in eternity past. Ephesians says before the foundations of the world. Somebody read 829. We're also set apart, I believe, for salvation, even though it's not stated so clearly, but the idea is 324. Would somebody read that one? You should. Oh, I already have it. You got 829? Somebody get it? Go ahead, Connie. Chapter 6, we won't read all of it, set apart from the old life. Remember the idea of sanctification set apart for a purpose. Who's got 324? Dave's got it. And then the passage we're looking at, set apart from law. Set apart from law. You got it, Connie? Read uh, 829. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he formed to the Son, that he might be the firstborn from the Okay. To be conformed, in other words, there's a plan and a purpose in this predestination. Set apart for God's plan, set apart for salvation, 324. Be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Christ. Okay, salvation, chapter 6, we've stressed set apart from the old way of life to a new way of life as well, the positive, and now in the passage we're looking at looks in terms of set apart from something, from the law, and it's set apart to something for fruitfulness, for fruitfulness. We'll spend more time developing that next time. But verse 5, he reminds us of negative fruit or past fruit, the fruit of death, for while we were in the flesh, And we'll come back and look at that word as well. He's talking about 
The flesh is who we are apart from Christ. It's another synonym for old nature, if you want to use that phrase. While we were in the flesh, now he's going to remind us the, the fruit that that produces. The sinful passions, in other words, the drives, the, uh, we see a similar word to the one here, the desires of the sinful nature, these passions which were aroused by the law. Now he's talking about the law again, and notice it's capitalized. I think from here on out he's talking about the Mosaic law, or maybe covenant, which were aroused by the law. We're at work in the members of our body. This is old nature, past. In order to emphasize the contrast, which is we died to all of that. That's chapter 6. But this, these sinful passions aroused by the law, working in our members, it bore fruit. And we don't need to go over that again. We've emphasized that in chapter 6. Bearing fruit for death. He's not talking about physical death. He's not talking about even second death or eternal death, but he's talking about that deadness of life here and now, that comprehensive death that I talked about. Looking at us certainly spiritually, it breaks fellowship. In other words, those sinful passions break fellowship with God, so we're separated from God even though we are believers. As intellectual, well, as unbelievers, That's true without any relationship to God. Intellectually, we don't see spiritual things. We're dead to spiritual things. And down the list that I gave you when we were in chapter 6. That's the death here. That comprehensive overall death that has application in every area of our being. So that's verse 5. But now, here's the transition and here's the contrast. We have that past fruit of death that didn't produce anything of value before God or anything eternal. But verse 6, the present service in newness of life. But now we have been released from the law. See the main theme here? Now that we have been released from the law, not to do whatever we want to do, not to break the law, not to go into the restrictions of the law, but having died to that by which we were bound, the law bound us, sin bound us, death bound us. Well, that's in chapter 6. So that we serve in newness of the Spirit. That's a summary of chapter 8. Serving in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The, what's the word? Specific stipulations of the Mosaic law. I think that's what he's alluding to there. The letter of the the law. The oldness of the letter. It's old because it's now not applicable in the new era. This new dispensation. This new time frame. It's old. Okay? We got it through verse 6. Did you notice that? Woohoo! Yep. So, we're dead to sin. Now we're dead to the law. We're freed from sin, chapter 6, 19, and now, verse 6, we're freed from the law. We're slaves to God, 6, 19 through 21, and now we can serve God in newness of spirit, also verse 6. So we have some parallels with chapter 6. And we can add to our list here, the sixth point here, believers are freed from the law. 
So he's going to expand on that beginning in verse 7. But verse 6, we have this concept emphasized. So he gave us an illustration to illustrate the point of being dead to something. The marriage relationship ends when the husband dies. So also the relationship to the law ends when we die. But we are also raised. So now we are free to remarry, you might say. And that's also emphasized in chapter 6, 14, and 15. Or even if we were, um, had a master, we didn't have two masters. That's right. And now we get to serve a new one. A new one. Serve the most. And what he's going to get into in chapter 7, our tendency is to go back to the old master. And that ends in, oh, this wretchedness at the end of chapter 7. So we're set apart from the law, but we're also set apart to something. Set apart for fruitfulness and set apart for newness of life. 7-6. You didn't think we could make it through six verses, did you? The purpose of sanctification, remember sanctification is to be set apart for a purpose. Here's the purpose. The purpose is to bear fruit. Seven. It's a long process, but that's the purpose of sanctification. Anyone want to close for us? Great Easter message, right? Newness of life, resurrection life. Father, we're so grateful you have done rescuing us from the bondage to the loss and bringing us into a new relationship with you through Jesus. Christ. Pray for your continued work and would you reach through us and realize that we need you. Amen. Amen.